3: This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. Cold and crisp winter's morning, January 25th, 1970, the body of a young boy is found in a watery ditch at a farm near Ponteland in Northumberland. Just two years earlier, two little boys had been strangled by another child, and although the culprit had been caught, investigators wondered if something eerily similar had happened to Alan Graham. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 16 of They Walk Among Us. A podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Alan Graham was the youngest in his family. His parents divorced when he was young. After the separation, Alan's mother Mary had found a new partner named Tom, and they lived together on Buick Road in Gateshead, a town in the north of England. Attending Brick and Beds Junior High School, the young Alan was described as a bright boy. He joined the army cadets and had a keen interest in pigeons enjoying outings on Saturdays to Newcastle-upon-Tyne's Green Market to speak with the pigeon breeders who congregated there. At 11 years old, Alan Graham was a typical pre-teen boy. He enjoyed playing football, hanging out with his friends and writing about interesting places he had seen and people he had met. Detailing his thoughts in a little black diary kept in his bedroom at his mother's three-storey home. Alan came from a large family. His siblings were older, and most of them had moved out to start families of their own, but they all remained close. Alan's brother, Dennis Barron, lived with his wife Moira and their three children four miles away in the area of Benwell. Just across the Tyne Alan often went to stay with them During the weekends On the evening of Thursday January 22nd 1970 Alan's sister-in-law Moira And her children Called in for a social visit So Mary could see her grandchildren Alan was due to be at school The following day But wanted to go back To Benwell with Moira so that evening they took a taxi to Moira and Dennis's home on Gerald Street and Alan planned to stay for a few days. Alan had two shillings and his mother left his weekly pocket money of ten shillings with Moira for safekeeping. On Saturday morning, January 24th, Moira recalled Alan coming into her room two or three times and asking for a cigarette. Moira knew the boy smoked, and she would give him a cigarette occasionally, but his constant pleading wore her down, and so she handed him two shillings and sixpence to go to the corner shop and get himself a packet of ten cigarettes. It was just after 12.30pm, and it was raining heavily. However, Appleton's shop was less than 50 yards from the house at the bottom of Gerald Street. The shopkeeper, Doris Appleton, remembered Alan buying a pack of 10 Embassy cigarettes between 12.40 and 1.00 p.m. that day. She asked him if the cigarettes were for his sister-in-law and he told her they were. Doris Appleton later said, He was in no sort of hurry and there was nothing unusual about him. After Alan left Appleton's, it should have taken him a minute or two to return to the property where his brother and sister-in-law lived, but Alan never came back. Moira didn't really worry when Alan had not immediately returned from the shop. She knew he had been, quote, gasping for a cigarette, and she thought he might have met some of the local boys. After all, she had just given him his pocket money, and maybe he had gone out with his friends to spend it. As the hours passed, doubt began to creep in. Moira began to wonder if Alan might have returned to his mother's. After speaking with her husband, Moira called Mary sometime between 6pm and 7pm to ask if Alan was with her. Mary said she had not seen her son since he left. With the realisation that no one in the family had seen the boy since he went to buy cigarettes, they reported Alan's disappearance to the police. Alan had lost track of time when he had been out alone before, but never for long, and he would usually tell someone where he was going. It was dark early, and the day's freezing rain meant that the streets were empty as the search for Alan began. It was not the sort of climate where he was likely to hang around all day without getting very damp and cold. There were pigeon lofts around 100 yards from the shop. Perhaps he had been distracted by his hobby and did not notice the time. Alan's loved ones checked to see if Alan might have gone there, but he hadn't, nor had he been seen hanging around the area at any point in the day. Mary called Alan's father on the off chance their son had gone to see him, but his father had not and it was long past the time an eleven-year-old boy should be home. It was still dark the following morning, when farm worker Gordon Bell arrived at Callerton Grange Farm, around eight miles northwest of Newcastle city centre. As he had driven along a road to the farm, Bell's headlights shone on a muddy pair of shoes that were lying in the middle of the road. It was less than 100 yards from the well-travelled Newcastle to Stamfordham Road near Ponteland. It was a peculiar sight, but it was early in the morning and Gordon had work to do, putting the shoes to the back of his mind until he finished his tasks at around 9am. As he drove back up the road, Gordon Bell slowed to a stop in front of the shoes And bent down to look at them. Bell's attention was drawn to something in a drainage ditch nearby, and as he got closer, Bell recoiled. Face down in the water filled culvert was the body of a young boy. Officers from the Northumberland Constabulary were dispatched to the scene immediately. It did not take long for them to identify the victim as Alan Graham. The youngster was still dressed in the clothes he had been seen in the previous day. A pair of jeans, a grey shirt and a grey cord reefer jacket. An unopened pack of ten cigarettes were found in his jacket pocket. The black shoes in the road belonged to Alan. Alan Graham's body was taken to Newcastle General Hospital for a post-mortem examination as detectives began analysing the scene, seven miles from where Alan had last been spotted over 20 hours earlier. The investigators theorised that Allen must have been killed elsewhere before his body was transported to the remote area. They wondered if he had been dragged from the boot of a car and his shoes had come off in the muddy road as his body was pulled toward the ditch. Initial autopsy results indicated the Talon had been strangled. There were no signs of sexual assault. It seemed like a completely motiveless killing and the police had to break the news to Alan's loved ones who had been searching for him all night. Alan's mother was inconsolable at the loss of her youngest child. Her husband Tom addressed the press the day after Alan was found and spoke of his disbelief at what had happened. He's just not the sort of boy who would talk to any stranger and certainly he would not have taken a lift. I just cannot understand it and the whole family are shattered with what has happened. My wife has been under sedation since the police broke the news. I cannot understand why anyone should want to harm him. Concerned parents wondered if there was a child killer in their midst. Others on high alert escorted their children to and from school, as a heavy police presence remained in Benwell. Alan's classmates and members of the faculty held a vigil and prayer service in the wake of his murder. Headmistress Miss Weatherstone told reporters, We have all been stunned by the news this morning. Alan was a perfectly normal, average sort of boy. As the murder investigation got underway, 40 detectives and uniformed police officers began making door-to-door inquiries under the instruction of the lead detective, Chief Superintendent Harvey Burroughs. The investigators concentrated on Gerald Street where Alan had last been seen by shopkeeper Doris Appleton. She told the police about the impression she got from the boy. I think that the person must have known him because he was a very quiet lad, far too cautious to go off with a stranger. Alan's mother remained under medical supervision as the police began to probe every detail of the family's private lives. Alan's older brother Fred Barron said at the time, She is rallying very well and trying to put a brave face on things. There is nothing else she can do. We are doing everything we can to help the police. This man has got to be found. It was believed that Alan had been within a 50-yard distance between his brother's home and the corner shop when he met his killer. Detective Burroughs spoke at a press conference held at Pilgrim Street Police Station in the days following the discovery of Alan's body. He said, We are looking for a person who seems to have killed completely without motive. We want to trace anyone who might have seen the boy between the time he left his brother's house and bought the cigarettes. Someone has spoken to him within minutes of his buying the cigarettes and these are vital minutes. We cannot ignore the possibility that this was someone he knew. It may be difficult because though Alan visited his stepbrother's home frequently, he was not very well known. He kept to himself. As officers searched Alan's bedroom at his mother's home, they found the small black book that he wrote in like a diary. The lead investigator described it as a record of people and places Alan was impressed by. Burroughs said, He was a boy who wrote down most things in this diary, which is being checked at the moment. The name of the killer could be in this book. We are now checking it out with the family and those people mentioned in the book. While they were conducting house-to-house inquiries, the investigators spoke to a woman who lived on Gerald Street. The potential witness believed she had seen something notable on the afternoon Alan went missing. Mrs Clark had been in her kitchen making lunch at around 12.50pm when she heard the screeching of car tyres in the lane behind her row of houses. A sudden sharp sound of the car braking sent Mrs. Clark running to the back stairs, believing that her dog Patch had been knocked down. Patch was a safe distance away from the brown car being driven at speed along the back lane. It was going so fast Mrs. Clark worried it wouldn't make it around the bend at the top of the street. She told the police, then it braked very hard and screeched around the corner, making towards Newcastle. It sticks in my mind because not many cars use the back lane, and this car was going too fast. The investigators could not rule out the possibility that Alan had walked through the back lane on his way home from the shop. They knew he had left the house through the front door, but they had no idea which way he had walked back. Police postulated that Allen had been strangled elsewhere before his body was left in a farm ditch, so officers began checking the movements of known sex offenders in the area. Detective Burroughs strongly believed that Allen knew his killer, and the police began cross-referencing the names in Alan's diary with people that may have known he was in Benwell that weekend. Officers also questioned pigeon breeders at the green market. They knew that Alan visited a pigeon loft nearby, and the Benwell area was popular with breeders. It seemed possible that Alan could have been stopped by a breeder he knew as he was likely to speak to anyone about the birds he loved. Burroughs told reporters, The theme that runs through this inquiry concerns pigeons, and from our inquiry so far, the world of pigeons has a strong connection to Alan's book. As the inquiry continued, officers spoke with two 11-year-old boys who were believed to have seen Alan before he disappeared. Their statements assisted the police in narrowing down a time frame. Alan was said to have been gasping for a cigarette when he left his brother's home, but the pack found in his pocket was unopened, which meant that he had not had the chance to smoke one. This led the police to believe that Alan had been taken or lured away almost immediately after he left the corner shop. Investigators tried to track down 16 cars that had been stolen in Newcastle's West End on the night Allen was killed. They theorised that one of the stolen vehicles could have been used to abduct the boy and dump his body. Burroughs said he thought it was possible that Allen had been killed by a youngster but an adult would need to have some involvement because a vehicle had likely been used to move Alan's body to where it was found. The lead detective had resigned himself to the fact that the investigation could be a, quote, long, hard slog, but he was optimistic that the answers lay on Gerald Street, saying, We are getting down to the boys who knew Alan, but they are not coming to us. Many of them, or maybe their parents, think they have no contribution to make. But if we find all of his friends and associates, it is possible conversations he had with them might lead us to the person responsible for his death. We want these youngsters to come forward even though they may think they cannot help. Fear is not the reason for the lack of response. It is apathy, their belief that they cannot help. We think they can. Hundreds of statements had been taken and were being sifted through in a dedicated incident room at the police station by dozens of officers assigned to the case. Detectives had three questions they wanted answered. These were, Why did Alan not go straight home with the cigarettes he had bought? Why had he stayed out in the pouring rain without an overcoat? And why had he not informed his relatives of his intention of staying out when he normally would have done so? Investigators claimed to have interviewed all of Allen's friends and spoke with his Army Cadet Unit. Officers also interviewed bus drivers to check if Allen could have made his way out of Benwell. However, the focus of the investigation appeared to remain on Gerald Street, as the police thought that the killer was someone Alan knew. Detective Burroughs described the case as a puzzle with some missing pieces and appealed for people to come forward. He admitted that if it was a chance abduction, it would make the inquiry much more difficult. Exactly a week after Alan Graham was last seen by his loved ones, a funeral was held in Gateshead. January 31st was a dreary day, and for once people hoped that it would rain. This was because after his funeral mass, a reenactment of Alan's last known movements was to take place on Gerald Street in Benwell. It would be ideal to have the same weather as the day Alan disappeared. Reverend Charles Campbell conducted the service before Alan was laid to rest at Saltwell Cemetery. The Reverend told mourners, It is surprising that boys have been the target of wickedness and brutal attacks since the beginning of the century. Some people think that the situation has improved, that there is much more culture these days. But the murder of Alan shows the heart of man is still desperately wicked. Somewhere in a city street the key to this brutal murder is held. A troubled conscience bears the mark of this awful deed, and someday the secret of that conscience will come out, and justice will be done. As he took on the role of Alan for the reconstruction, a police officer's son wore similar clothing to what Alan had been wearing on the day he disappeared. The stand-in walked the short distance from Dennis and Moira's home to Appleton's shop. Crowds of onlookers stood by as the young boy was carefully followed by the watchful eyes of detectives concealing themselves in surrounding properties. Despite mimicking the scene, it sparked no memories and no immediate leads emerged. The following day, panic struck the community once again when a five-year-old boy raced home and told his mother that his eight-year-old sister had been pulled into a brown car by a man in a grey coat. Every available officer was directed to join the frantic search for the little girl, but just 40 minutes later, she arrived home, oblivious to the commotion her younger brother had unwittingly caused. The incident was put down to the recent news coverage of Alan Graham's abduction and murder being fresh in the young boy's mind. A press conference held on February 1st saw the first forensic breakthrough in the case being announced. Although Detective Burroughs did not reveal exactly what this was, he was optimistic. Burroughs told reporters, The forensic experts have provided something positive which should give us something definite to go on. It could well be that it will eventually be used as evidence and it would be wrong to release any news of it. However, they have provided something which could be very important, and we now have a clue, which could be of very great assistance to us. It could well be that, should we find a suspect, this clue could either prove or disprove guilt. After the reconstruction of Alan's last steps was aired on national television, a girl came forward to say that she had seen Alan in Appleton's shop buying cigarettes at lunchtime on the day he went missing. Although it was not new evidence, it did corroborate the information detectives had already been given, so they were sure that Alan had been lured to his death just moments later. The 60-man murder squad had spent over 5,500 hours on the case, and they had collected over 900 statements. Published on February 3rd, the journal newspaper featured an article on the lead detective. Burroughs was described as being a six-foot-tall Cumbrian who has never failed to catch the killer in all the murder hunts he has headed. Burroughs said that his motto was that there will never be an undetectable murder and he was confident that by the end of the investigation into Alan Graham's death, his record would still be 100%. Burroughs had worked on an eerily similar case two years prior. When four-year-old Martin Brown and three-year-old Brian Howe were found strangled to death two months apart on wasteland in Scotswood, an inquiry named the Rat Alley Murder Hunt began. The evidence pointed toward a young killer. An 11-year-old local girl, Mary Bell, was arrested and later convicted of manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility, making her one of the UK's youngest female killers. Detective Burroughs said that the lack of clear motive in Alan Graham's murder made the investigation even harder, telling a reporter for The Journal, If we have a murder of lust, revenge or passion, we can immediately narrow down the field. But in some cases, there are so many possibilities it is a long task to get to the root of the matter. Burroughs praised the other officers who were working on the case when he remarked, The only difference between a good policeman and a bad one is hard work and in this case we have teamwork at its best. There is only one vital thing a detective on a case needs, and that is tenacity. Luck does not really come into it, but the policeman must be prepared to slog on. The team were working out of the top two floors at Newcastle's West End Police Station in the process of rereading over 1,200 statements. Specialist officers who had been trained in spotting intentional or unintentional falsehoods in the statements had been called in to assist in finding anything that did not add up. Burroughs believed that the most valuable statement had come from a schoolboy who lived on Gerald Street. He said, It could lead to nothing, but there is a chance it could lead us to the killer. It may be that this is the vital lead we have been waiting for. A week later, Detective Burroughs told reporters that he believed he was narrowing the gap between him and Alan's killer. He was confident that the murderer was someone close to the 11-year-old. Burroughs said, This murder is a mixture of vengeance and passion. Now we know more background. We are sure the murderer met Alan prior to the killing. It is now apparent that the killing could have been the result of a disagreement arising from an association. We hope that Alan might have dropped the name of his killer to one of his associates. This person may have got the name and not realise its significance. Burroughs went on to explain the challenges the inquiry faced and offered his thoughts about the progress of the investigation. It sometimes takes a week to check out one statement. Before a person is eliminated from our books, we have to be certain he is clear. Although we are concentrating our inquiries in the Gerald Street area, it is possible the boy was not killed there. We know he was not killed in the area in which his body was found. Now, still fairly certain Alan met someone in Benwell. Whether he went back to Gateshead after that, we want to find out. In March, the investigators received a tip from someone who believed they had spotted a man they had seen in the area near where Alan's body was left, who was also lurking in a doorway on the reenactment footage. This lead turned out to be a dead end. However, the following month, Detective Burroughs revealed that forensic experts had discovered traces of soil recovered from Alan's body that had not come from the area where he was found. It was believed to have come from the Tyneside area. Burroughs said, When we find it, It will give us an idea of where Alan went or was taken after he was last seen in Gerald Street. It could prove vital. Officers working on the case had been reduced to 12 full-time detectives, but 300 samples of soil from Newcastle's West End had been sent to the Home Office Laboratory for comparison. By this point, investigators had logged over 21,000 man-hours on the case, and most of their time was spent checking and rechecking statements in a process dubbed the system. In 1970, without today's modern forensic technology, the system was the only method that had been proven to track killers. Twelve weeks into the investigation... Detective Burroughs told the press, ''The killer is out there somewhere and he will give up before I do. In case he thinks things have quietened down, I can tell him they have not. It may be a long time before we have covered every possible angle, but each day brings a new suspect. One of these mornings it will be his turn. I think he is a local man.'' and we are still determined to get him. The inquest into Alan Graham's murder was held in New Bern on May 21st. Mr J. Dodds, the south-east Northumberland coroner, presided over the inquest in front of an inquest jury. The pathologist, who had conducted the post-mortem on Alan's body in the days after it was discovered, testified about his findings. Dr. James Ferris told the jury that Alan had been manually strangled and the injuries on the front of his neck indicated there had been moderate pressure applied to the area. The pathologist highlighted the fact that due to the flexibility of the tissue in children's necks, there only needs to be a moderate amount of pressure or force applied in order to kill. He believed that the killer had strangled Alan with one hand, the left hand. Dr. Ferris said, I think that since only a moderate force could be applied, that death could have been sudden and unexpected and it would be impossible to completely exclude accidental strangulation. It was the doctor's belief that Alan had been dead for at least 12 hours before he had been found, and had likely been in the ditch for several hours. While there was no evidence of drowning, it was not possible to say that Alan had not been killed in the ditch. The pathologist explained Alan could have died in the vicinity, but Dr. Ferris did not think death had occurred where Alan's body was found. DCI Bernard Monkhouse, who had taken over the day-to-day running of the investigation, told the inquest jurors, It has been impossible to trace the boy's movements from the Saturday afternoon when he left the shop until his body was found. Between 2,000 and 3,000 statements have been taken and we have made about 20,000 cross-checks on them. Before he instructed the jury to return an open verdict due to the possibility that Alan had been accidentally killed, the coroner said, During the exhaustive police inquiries, nothing has been forthcoming. It may never be known what happened on that Saturday afternoon and evening. Undeterred by the verdict, DCS Burroughs vowed to keep searching for Alan Graham's killer when he said, This inquest does not close police inquiries into this matter. We shall continue them.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults.
5: Gravis or Lambert Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877 351 0300.
0: See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.
2: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right?
3: In the months that followed the inquest, Alan's mother, 49-year-old Mary Walls, spent her life savings travelling around Britain to meet with over 50 clairvoyants. Speaking with a reporter for the Journal newspaper about the £1,000 she had already spent, Mary said she had been living out of a suitcase for five months – Travelling from place to place in search of a scrap of information from spiritualists that would lead to Alan's killer. Mary had met with clairvoyants from London, Manchester, Blackpool and dozens of other cities. The first thing she would do when she reached a town was to go to the nearest spiritualist centre and ask them to arrange a meeting with one of the members. Mary said, Many of them just talked to me. Many went into a trance, but they all said that two men killed my boy. I had a letter from one woman in Sussex who gave me a description of these two men. She was sincere, and even volunteered to travel all the way up here to take part in an identification parade. She was so sure of their description, and was full of hope but my happiness was squashed when I returned with the information that I had and found the police could not act upon it because it was not fact. Despite her disappointment that the authorities could not use the information because it was not from an admissible source, Mary felt that it was all she could do. She said, I am glad that I did all this. I would not have been able to rest if I hadn't. I am prepared to sell the house and everything I own if it means bringing these murderers to justice. I can have no peace of mind. I have a constant headache. And each week I phone the police station to see if they have any information. On the night of November 23rd, 1970, almost ten months to the day since Alan had been lured to his death, A man driving a white-coloured Mark II Ford Cortina had attempted to kidnap an 11-year-old boy on Benton Road near Four Lane Ends, around five miles from the location where Alan had last been seen. It was approximately 6.30pm. The boy was standing at a bus stop when the car pulled up beside him and the driver got out. Without warning, the man attempted to drag the young would-be victim into the vehicle, but the boy was able to resist long enough that the man ran back to his car and sped off. The boy described the potential kidnapper as being around 5 feet 8 or 9 inches tall, thinly built with thinning hair and wearing a knee-length mac. DCS Burroughs spoke about the potential links between this incident and Allen's murder. He said, There is a strong possibility that this is the man we want. This is quite often the way this kind of case is resolved. It could have been just this kind of pick-up in the Alan Graham affair, the driver asking him to get into the car. A vehicle was used in the Allen murder because he was dumped where his body was found. This could be the small missing link. All the other parts are there. We are taking this incident very seriously. In the whole of this case, there has always been that one little part missing. When it comes, it will be something quite simple which should have been apparent throughout. This could well be it. Burroughs was leaving the Northumberland force to take a post as head of police security at Heathrow Airport and hoped to solve the case before he left on December 31st. Burroughs said, There are too many similarities here for us to ignore it. There should be a strong connection. This is often the way things happen. On the first anniversary of her son's death, Mary Wool spoke about the impact Alan's murder had not only on her, but the entire family. She had spent over £2,000 meeting Clairvoyance, and Mary had no intention of slowing down. She said, "'All I want is one name. I will never rest until Alan's killer is found.' and I am sure that somebody, a spiritualist, will give me the clue that will lead to his arrest. All I fear is that the discovery of the killer's identity will lead to more heartbreak. It could well be that whoever did this is known by us or is even a friend of ours. I have now come to believe that whoever killed my son probably never meant to do it. It was established that he was killed by someone holding his throat with only one hand and it may well have been an accident. Perhaps they were telling him off or angry with him if he had done wrong. After all, boys are boys. All I am certain of is that the whole family's life has been changed by his death. At Christmas I could not bear to stay here. I went to my eldest son's home. When I went out for presents, it nearly broke my heart. All I could buy eventually was a cross for his grave. Now the police have returned all his clothes which they took for forensic tests. It is just another reminder. I do not want them. They lie in the lounge, even the clothes he was wearing when he was killed. I know that the police have not given up, but as the months go by, I think there is less and less chance of an arrest ever being made. Mary Walls had requested a second reconstruction to be held with Alan's cousin, who bore a striking resemblance to him. However, the police rejected her request because they felt as though it would not be useful after so much time had passed an obituary mary had posted in the paper read god bless you alan till we meet again forgive me lord but i'm still hoping and praying that justice will be done Superintendent Alan Bailey had taken over the investigation by this point, and although he had no idea how long it would take, he was optimistic that they would catch the killer when he remarked, It could be tomorrow, next month or next year when we get the break we need. At the moment we are still trying to get the one absolutely vital scrap of information we must have. What happened to Alan after he left the shop where he bought cigarettes? At the moment, despite 12 months of investigations, this remains a mystery. The longer this frames out, the harder it becomes to solve. It is a year ago now, and people do not remember small facts which might be vital. But the case is not over. The initial manhunt is over but everything which could prove to be a leak is checked. Whenever an incident is reported, our men are asking themselves if it could have anything to do with Alan Graham. One day it will, and then a very baffling case will be solved. Another year went by before Detective Bailey announced that the number of investigators working on the case had doubled in response to new information they had received. Bailey was adamant that the case had never been closed, and although he could not share exactly what evidence had been received, it did shed new light on the investigation. Mary Wolves had moved from her home to an apartment above the Station Hotel in Newcastle. Her flat was like a shrine in Alan's memory. A large framed oil painting of the boy had pride of place on the living room wall. Mary admitted she did not like to be alone, because everything came flooding back, so she kept busy. Mary said, Never a day goes past without me thinking about Alan, but now all I want to know is why he was killed. Mary had taken over the management of a pub in the town of Bladen, but she explained her sole purpose had not changed in the two years since her son was murdered. She told a reporter for the journal Alan was born in Bladen and lived there for some years before moving to Gateshead. Everyone knows me here, and I just have that feeling that I might learn something about his death. I feel all the money I have spent will be worth it if I just find out why he was killed. They said at the inquest it could have been an accident. That lad may not have meant to strangle him. Mary had been told by several clairvoyants that Alan's killer was a young person, but that did not give her much comfort when she remarked. That worries me because I know that some mothers may have to go through the same sort of thing I have been through. Alan's brother Dennis Barron, who Alan had been staying with when he disappeared, stood at the corner shop every Saturday afternoon in the hopes that he would find some answers. On the second anniversary, CID officers had held a vigil along Gerald Street and interviewed anyone in the area on the off chance they had walked down the same street two years prior. Detective Bailey warned those who had been keeping secrets of the trouble they could face if they did not come forward. The danger of withholding information must be pointed out, he said. I ask these people to come forward. Any information will be treated as strictly confidential. Two months later, in March 1972, Mary Wolves began receiving letters from an unknown source who claimed to know the identity of Alan's killer. Mary felt that the author's knowledge of the case indicated that they were telling the truth were worried about their friend who had committed the crime. However it was possible they could have studied the case closely and written to Mary as a cruel joke. The person explained that they had previously come as far as the front door of the house on Buick Road, but they never knocked, changing their mind and walking away. Voicing her opinion on the matter, Mary said, I am inclined to think that this person is telling the truth, but I wish he would give us some kind of definite clue to work on. He always starts, Dear Mrs. Walls, and ends by asking me to please help and get the police to do something. It is an agony for me to think that we are so close, and yet we are still so far away. I only hope that this person will help the police." Detective John McFad, who was working on the inquiry, bluntly expressed his position, saying at the time, “These letters are anonymous, and unless someone comes forward to the police to enlarge on the information in them, they are useless. In November of that year, Mary Walls was brought to court. The pub that Mary was managing was raided. She was charged with two counts of aiding and abetting the consumption of intoxicating liquor after hours and two counts of aiding and abetting the supply of intoxicating liquor after hours. The police had found Mary, another woman and eight men in the pub with mostly empty glasses after closing time. When asked what was going on, Mary said it was her birthday party, but her birthday had been five months prior. At the trial, she explained that she had received another anonymous letter about Alan's murder that day, and she was speaking about it with the people who stayed behind at the pub. I was very upset, she said. I admit telling the police it was my birthday, but I just couldn't tell them we were discussing the murder case. One witness who had been there denied the prosecutor's assertion that there had been jollity in the bar after hours when the witness remarked, ''How could there have been jollity?'' ''We were talking about the murder of Mrs. Walls' son.'' Mary Walls was found guilty of all charges and find a total of 20 pounds. She moved back to Buick Road shortly after. In December 1973, Detective Burrows was employed at Heathrow Airport, where he was working as head of police security. He was again asked for his opinion on the case. Not solving the Alan Graham murder was my one regret leaving the force in Northumberland, but I still keep a check on the situation and I still feel the answer is there and will be found. Mary was still waiting for someone to come forward and explain that she had never given up hope that she would find out what happened to her son. There's never a day goes by without me thinking of Alan or a friend or relative mentions his name, she said. My daughter comes to see me quite often and brings her new baby son. They are a great comfort. My 19-year-old Paul lives with me in Buick Road. I can talk more about Alan than I used to during the first months after the murder. Detective Burroughs told me to never give up hope. He said someone will make one little slip sometime. That is all the police need. I don't know how the murderer and anyone who knows he killed Alan can live without suffering. It's bad enough for me, but it must be terrible for them. The case seemed to haunt Detective Burroughs. Not only had it broken his 100% record for solving murders, There was the image of Alan he could not get out of his head. The following decade in 1981 he told the journal, I can remember the body in the ditch and his shoes lying in the road covered in mud. One recalls the unusual amount of mud on those shoes in the middle of the road, where the body had clearly been dragged out of the boot of a car. Burroughs had deduced that Alan had been pulled from the boot because anything lower would not have caused his shoes to come off. However, despite examining four to 5,000 soil samples, the authorities were never able to determine where Alan had been in his final hours. In November 1989... Mary spoke to a correspondent for the Evening Chronicle. She had moved from Buick Road to a bungalow in Red Row during 1984, but she had to sell the property when she received a £50,000 tax bill. To cover the costs of the search for a clairvoyant who could name her son's killer, Mary had taken in lodgers at her other home in Gateshead, but she did not declare the income. She was hit with the massive backdated tax bill that was gathering £16 interest per day. Mary had planned to spend the rest of her life in the bungalow, where she had hung an oil painting of Alan in the living room and had made a memorial garden. She would open up about the impact her son's murder had on the family, saying, Our minds were filled with revenge. My boys went out to kill the person who had done this and the police warned them that if they took the law into their own hands they would end up in court. The kids had no life with me. I was having injections to put me to sleep and injections to wake me up and I was in a terrible state. I began to suspect everyone. I even accused my second husband, Alan's stepfather, of killing him. Within a couple of years, Mary was living alone, back in the three-story house on Buick Road after she had again turned to spiritualists for help. I'm sure that somewhere there would be a clairvoyant who would be able to tell me something about my son's murderer, she said. I did get some spiritual comfort from them, but not the answers I was looking for. The majority were able to describe where Alan was, but I knew that already. What I wanted to know about was his murderer. In 1997, a woman who had attended school with Alan reached out to staff at the Gateshead Post newspaper claiming she had been contacted by Alan through a medium at a conference. The woman had gone in search of answers about her own family member's death, but when the medium sketched a young boy, Yvonne Ferris immediately recognised the person as Alan Graham. Yvonne said she was contacted by Alan again at her home two days later, and try to reach out to Mary Walls to pass on the information. Nothing more came of the spiritual element in the case, and sadly Mary Walls died in 2001, never knowing what happened to her son. Alan's older brother Fred Barron spoke about her burial years later. He said, Mum was desperate to find out who did it and was always very sad and frustrated that Alan wasn't given justice. I only hope now that the police identify the killer before my time is up. I am stunned that nothing has come out especially with the way forensics have advanced in the last four decades. Someone must have taken his shoes off and put him in a vehicle to where he was found. Alan's brothers, Fred and Dennis Barron, began a media campaign in 2010 to try and get answers about his murder. Dennis voiced his feelings about the initial investigation and how it had been handled. He told a reporter for the Evening Chronicle. It just seemed like everything was done in a rush. I just thought they were a bit amateur. I got that feeling from the moment they took my statement. I just thought they couldn't be bothered. It seemed like the only people they really questioned was us. They took hair and everything from us. You would think that we had done it. I think they thought it was in the family. Dennis did not agree with the detective's assertion that Alan had been killed by someone he knew, saying, ''All along I thought it had to be someone that was travelling through the area. I don't think the police at the time were professional enough. I think they left it too late. I don't think they had the manpower or the know-how. They could have wasted time looking at the family.'' In 2014, a crime reporter for The Chronicle Live, Sophie Doughty, wrote a series of articles on unsolved crimes in the Tyneside area. Within a week of the articles being released, a man came forward to say that he believed his son had been with Alan on the day he was killed. Matthew Bryson told The Chronicle, My son used to knock about with him and played with him on the street. Our Dave was playing with him that day. He was in the shop with him. Then they went around the corner together and were kicking a ball about. Then he heard a bloke shout at Alan saying, come on, get in here. Then he ran off. I think our Dave was the last one to see him alive. Bryson said that he had assumed the police knew who they were looking for because they never took a statement. Unfortunately, Matthew Bryson's son Dave died in 2004, so the police had missed their chance. Alan's brother Dennis was hopeful that the new information was a sign that people still remembered what happened all those years later but said this highlighted that the police did not speak to all of the witnesses at the time. In response, Detective Superintendent Roger Ford, who was the head of Northumbria Police's major crime team, was adamant that no unsolved murder investigation is ever closed. The constabulary would be reviewing the case to see if the lines of inquiry could be acted upon. In April of that same year, Another witness came forward. Ken Brown had been playing with Dave Bryson and Alan Graham on the day it was believed Alan was killed, and he remembered seeing a dark blue van pull up and a man shouting at Alan to get in. Ken had spoken to the police in the days following the murder, but was never asked to give a formal statement. As the decades passed, his memories faded until he saw the articles in the Chronicle. Ken said, I actually felt sick to my stomach. I now just want to do anything I can to help. Since I read the story in the Chronicle, it's been like the cogs in my brain have started turning. Ken described the man as being between 26 and 30 years old, with a slim build and dark hair that was slicked back. He believed the man had a Geordie accent and was wearing a light blue shirt and a donkey jacket. The vehicle was described as a dark blue van with two doors on each side of the rear. It had a chrome bumper and round headlights. Ken Brown spoke with the police, who said they would review all of the statements provided and seek new ones. Alan's brother Fred was desperate for answers after so long and wanted to know, how exactly did Alan die? Was Alan sexually assaulted? Do police still have any of Alan's clothing or belongings? Were any body parts kept? Why was Ken Brown not interviewed by the police at the time? Why have police sought no publicity for the crime for 44 years? What review was being completed, and why has the family not been spoken to about one? With the advancements of forensic technology, the family were hopeful that a DNA profile of the killer could be produced. Detective Chief Inspector Andy Fairlam, who was heading up the review of the case, spoke about the size and scope of the initial inquiry during 1970 when hundreds of people were interviewed and thousands of statements taken. Detective Fairlam said, 1970 and 2016 are poles apart in how we investigate, so we are reviewing what was done then and what we could do now. It just needs some fresh eyes. We never stop investigating as we could get some new intelligence and we will always look at it. Alan Graham was found in a ditch in the early morning. The ditch had some water in it and it had been raining that night. A lot of samples were taken from him and the surrounding area. We are having our forensic experts re-examine all of the material that has been retained since 1970 to identify any new forensic techniques that could be used on them. Unfortunately, a DNA profile could not be created. Very little evidence had survived the preceding four decades, so Allen's family's hopes were dashed at the disappointing news. Detective Chief Inspector John Bent assured the family that the constabulary would continue to seek new avenues of investigation to try and finally solve the case including speaking with any officers involved in the original inquiry. There had been examples of historic cases being solved, as in 2017 David Dearlove was convicted of killing his 19-month-old stepson 50 years earlier. The historic murder conviction gave one of Alan's brothers renewed optimism when Fred Barron said, I can't believe it's almost been 50 years and I can't believe this has gone on for 50 years and we still have no answers. You see other members of your family growing up and becoming parents and grandparents and you just think that Alan never got the chance to do that and we have no idea why. There's not a single day goes by when I don't think about it. I read about other cases being solved after 30, 40, after 50 years. And I still have hope. So where are we now? When the 50-year anniversary of Alan Graham's murder rolled around in 2020, although he was hopeful, Fred Barron worried that he would not live to see justice served. He felt he was running out of time, and any potential witnesses would no longer see the case as urgent or important, as five decades had passed. Fred told Sophie Doughty, writing for The Chronicle Live, I'm going to keep going as long as I'm breathing. Even if the police stop, I won't stop trying. But who will if I'm not there? Detective Chief Inspector Fairlam said that the police were still pursuing active lines of inquiry and there were still people they wanted to speak to. Fairlam felt that the passage of time might be what was needed for someone to divulge what they knew. And described how he saw Alan around the time of his death, saying, Alan himself was a challenge. He was an 11-year-old boy who was a heavy smoker, and he used to wander the streets on his own. These days we talk a lot about vulnerability, and Alan was definitely a vulnerable child. Bad things happen to vulnerable people because they are in vulnerable situations. Fairlam spoke of being from Newcastle and he recalled the crime happening when he was younger. The detective admitted that they could not confirm with certainty that Alan knew his killer in spite of the conclusions made by former detectives working on the case. Detective Chief Inspector Fairlam said it was never too late to do the right thing. This is the murder of a young schoolboy. And that is a very big secret for a person to keep to themselves for 50 years. It's never too late for a person to come forward. People's memories may have faded. But if you are responsible for the murder of a child, then it is not something you are ever going to forget. And there is still time to speak to police. Despite the time that had passed, another witness did come forward after Fred Barron's pleas for information in the Chronicle. Ian Cole said that he was one of the 11-year-olds spoken to in the days after Alan was found murdered. Cole had passed on information about who he believed was responsible, but felt as though he was not taken seriously. Speaking about Alan, Cole said, I remember the first time my friends and I met him. We were having a football kick around. Alan was sitting in the archway watching us. We asked him if he fancied a game, and he was up like a shot, brave, to join in with a bunch of total strangers. At the time I thought there were some strange things going on. Then when I heard a young lad had gone missing and he had been killed, I started putting the pieces together. As time passed and the case remained unsolved, Alan's brother Fred feared that witnesses would pass away before they were questioned. Sadly, Alan's sister-in-law Moira, who Alan had been staying with around the time of his death, died soon after the 50th anniversary. Fred Barron said, It makes me worry that time is running out. There are people who might know something that will take that information to the grave. The case of Alan Graham's murder remains open and periodic reviews are ongoing. If you have any information... Please contact Northumbria Police. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Rhonda Relaford, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.